Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. It's easy to get the impression that history as a discipline is about recording truth. It's certainly one of the things that historians strive for, but it might be more accurate to say that history is about recording explanation. That's why interpretations and viewpoints can change without affecting the legitimacy of the work. However, an unfortunate casualty of this process is that sometimes falsehoods work their way into the historical record, and sometimes they stick. In this episode, we discuss a few different common history myths and how these falsehoods came to stay with us for so long. Let's begin. I'm here on HI 101 with Ethan Blesky. Hi. Hello. And it's the end of the year, and it's been a long year, and I've been on holidays for a couple weeks, so I've not done the usual amount of research. (laughs) So I thought we'd do something a little bit fun to wrap up the year, because why not? I feel like we've earned it a little bit. Um, and one thing I've really noticed about making this show over the years is that it's, and this is counterintuitive. It took me a long time to figure this out. It can actually be a little bit easier to do very surface level research on a couple of smaller topics than to do like really deep research on one topic. And you think that doing a bunch of stuff would be harder. No, not at all. So, um, with that in mind, uh, I thought what we could do for this time is talk about, Um, specifically some very common historical misconceptions or maybe myths uh, that float Mm -hmm. up fairly often and talk about not just like, yeah, that's wrong, but also a little bit about, you know, where these things came from, where some of the misconceptions might have originated, things like that. Give people a little bit of an idea of uh, some of the some of the sources of some of these ideas, because I, I think it's fine to you know, just correct stuff. I think it's more interesting to look at how it became wrong in the first place, especially with this idea of history being, you know, a record of the truth of the past, which I don't know, maybe that's the first myth we need to debunk here, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, anyways, I uh, I have a few different ones that we can talk about. And uh, yeah, with each one, I just sort of want to give an idea of, as I said, what it is, where it came from, and sort of why it's tended to stick around, as best we can tell. Cool. I'm excited. Excellent. I'm glad to hear it. I thought we'd start with a classic, which is uh, the myth that Napoleon Bonaparte was short. Right. He wasn't particularly short. In fact, he's basically smack dab in the middle of like average height for a European man at the beginning of the 19th century. 
Yeah, that's that's what I've heard. Yeah, I mean, he was as near as we can tell about five foot six or about one point six eight meters, which okay. you know at this point in time most european men well especially like upper class men tended to be in the like five foot two to five foot six range so it's not even like he was just sort of like on the shorter end of things men were shorter back then um and and he really was quite quite average all things considered but it's kind of weird because like his height has become one of the things that people kind of know the most about napoleon like it's one of those things that's become most associated with his name right he's yeah tyrannical and he's short there's the whole napoleon complex thing going on right short yeah. angry guy trying to like make up for his height through lack of a temper or or having a temper i suppose it's it's kind of one of those things that for me the the first a lot of where i've run into that is like cartoons that'll have historical things and you'll put in napoleon and he's like really exaggeratedly short mm -hmm. yeah that's that's actually very common and that's been, been a big part of the perpetuation of this myth throughout history actually as cartoons yeah uh but we'll come back to that let's start off with um you know let's talk let's talk about units of measure just a just a spicy spicy topic to begin off uh look we all kind of know that with the revolution, one of the things went along with it was the adoption of the metric system in, in France, right? Yeah. And there is sort of this, um, there is sort of this push that happens there based on sort of like a rationality, right? Like there's so much of the revolution that involves like setting aside old ways of doing things, like moving towards like rationalism and modernity. And a lot of what goes into selecting the metric system as a standard unit of measure is drawn from that impulse, right? Yeah. What isn't necessarily talked about quite as much is that France didn't have a standardized set of units for most types of measurements before the revolution. Hmm. In that, depending on where you were in France, calling certain measurements the same thing might actually yield different results. Um, so, you know, a pound wasn't necessarily a pound exactly the same everywhere in France, which was extraordinarily confusing for trade. Like, it was a real mess. Yeah. Yeah, it would be. <laughs> well, there had been attempts very, very, very early on to standardize measurements. There really hadn't been standard measurements since essentially the Roman Empire. Uh, Charlemagne tried to standardize measurements uh, in you know, approximately 800 CE. Um, but after his version of the Holy Roman Empire falls apart, it's really, really quick that the rest of the European continent drifts away from each other in the standardization of measurements. Um, Britain was kind of the exception here. Like the imperial system was essentially yeah. put in place in, uh, actually in the Magna Carta. So in 1215, saying that all of Britain oh, okay. was going to use one uh, measuring system. And they had actually done a pretty good job of maintaining that. France had not. Um, it's, it's estimated that at the time of the revolution, and this is across all different types of measurements. So volume, weight, length, all of that stuff. But across all different types of measurements, there might have been as many as a quarter million different units 
in use in France. Um, it was bad. A lot. That's a lot. Um, <laughs> let's talk specifically about length, though. Okay. There was there was a system of feet and inches in place, and that one was relatively stable throughout France. So generally speaking, a foot would be about a foot everywhere in France. However, an inch in France wasn't the same as an inch in Britain. They were slightly off. So a uh, a French inch was about 2.7 centimeters. A British okay. inch was about, it's about 2.57 centimeters. Um, okay. Which isn't a lot. It's pretty close, but it's just enough that it does accumulate, right? Yeah. So when descriptions are given of Napoleon in France, uh, his height is listed as, um, you know, five feet, two inches. Saint-Poix de Pousse. Um, and that's accurate because their inches and feet are longer. Or mm-hmm. so you need less of them to get to the same length, right? You know, it's 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 yeah. just a completely different set of measurements. However, when people in Britain would read that, they would go, "Oh, five foot two. I know what that is," because the the units are named the same thing, and they would go, "Hey, yeah. he seems kind of on the short end of things." So that's one source of the the confusion here is that his like official listed height is five foot two. You do also have the fact that he had a nickname from his men. Um, it's really uncommon, actually, in this era for uh, soldiers to have any particular um, loyalty to a particular general. Like, generally, okay. this has been, you know, professional ar- standing armies have flipped to, like, loyalty to the state, right? And yeah. But in, in Napoleon's case in particular, he was very, very highly respected by his men. And from the beginning of his military career... He'd been given uh, the nickname uh, Le, Petit, uh, Le Petit Caporal, the, the Little Corporal, mm-hmm. as a term of endearment by his men, which, yeah. again, people latch onto and they go, oh, the Little Corporal, he must be short. <laughs> like they've never heard of a term of endearment before, which is, again, a yeah. really weird and kind of bad faith reading of the whole situation. But fine, here it is, right? Yeah. Those two things in and of themselves probably wouldn't have had the staying power uh, that this myth has had throughout history, though. If it wasn't for a British cartoonist, a guy named uh, James Gilray, and this is where it comes back around to the cartoons, right? Yeah. Yeah. Gilray was a, a satirical political cartoonist, and the early 19th century is like, it is the golden era of political cartoons in Europe. Like it is an art form that is coming into its own. Uh, I love seeing those old ones. They're great. (laughs) So many labels, so many, you know, they're they're pretty vicious. Right. And yeah, uh, he, you know, I mean the, the Napoleonic wars, the, the, the leadership of Napoleon lasts quite a long time, really in, in, in the grand scheme of things. And beginning in 1803, uh, Gilray begins uh, depicting Napoleon as sort of like a like a petulant child, like always losing his temper, always very like angry, always and and, and drawing him as as very very small um, mm-hmm. to emphasize this childishness, essentially. Yeah, possibly drawing on these other points that we've discussed. You know, the listed height, the petit caporal. Um, 
And people loved these. They thought they were hilarious. Um, Napoleon hated them. <laughs> so much so that in the middle of the war, he wrote to the British government asking them to censor Gilray and his depiction of him in the newspapers. Uh, <laughs> Napoleon would be quoted to say that uh, Gilray had done more to bring down his reputation than all the armies of Europe. Um, he hated these things. <laughs> Which, I mean, you know, Streisand effect, right? Like, this just kept not only Gilray drawing these cartoons, yeah. but everybody else picking up on the same shorthand, right? And and that's sort of the nature yeah. of political cartoons. You want something that's easy to latch on to, like very visually, like visual shorthand stuff, right, to get your point across. Um, mm -hmm. And that's something that's stuck around to this day, right? I, I you know. Oh, yeah. Yeah, the, the minute you get elected president, they're going to find some specific like physical feature to latch onto and and caricature, right? Yep. So these these cartoons they were so popular that people really started thinking of of Napoleon as extremely small, but more importantly, extremely angry. And like, yeah, the man did have a temper, but like, he wasn't necessarily like petulant, right? He was he was a yeah. tyrant. That's a that's a sort of a different thing. <laughs> yeah. And and this 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 yeah this this visual shorthand really caught and stuck around and continued even after Napoleon's death and and you know that that through line continues throughout the 19th century and into the early 20th where you start getting like cartoons you get like you know Bugs Bunny and stuff like that will be depicting Napoleon as short as possible right and it's just yeah never really gone away um oh I, I forgot another uh, point to sort of the uh the relative height of napoleon which was that he had a an elite bodyguard corps that would uh be with him at all times just to like guard him physically and these these guards had a height uh requirement specifically for the light cavalry they had to be five foot eight at a minimum and the grenadiers had to be five foot ten at a minimum and the, the reason for that is grenadiers are like throwing like hand grenades, right? Like these are like the bombs with the little fuses. Yeah. And the longer your arms are, the farther you can throw them. Makes like, sense. Yeah. Plus he just wanted people to be intimidated by his bodyguard. Um, this bodyguard would also wear like bearskin, like tall bearskin hats, like the, like the Buckingham palace guards basically. Okay. Yeah. So here's Napoleon at five foot six. He's got guys who are minimum five foot ten plus bearskin hats, making them look even taller, surrounding him at all times. It kind of ended yeah. up making him look kind of small. Yeah. It's just an <laughs> optical illusion, right? Why is here here's the here's the point that I keep coming back to uh, as as yeah. I'm looking through all of this stuff. Why does it matter how tall Napoleon is? It really doesn't. It really doesn't, right? Like it's weird. It's it's such a it's such a weird kind of schoolyard bit of British propaganda that has persisted for two hundred years now. Yeah, and the whole the the whole thrust of it is, haha, he's short. It's so childish <laughs> itself. Like. Like talk talk to the like five empires that fell at Austerlitz. Like, do they care how tall yeah. they were? Like, it's it's such a weird <laughs> thing to latch onto, and it's such um such an our team, your team sort of point as well. Because I mean, like, listen, nobody nobody in the UK cared that uh, Horatio Nelson was was five foot four when he won at Trafalgar, right? Like, yeah, 
<laughs> nobody was making fun of him. Um, but Napoleon might be kind of on the short side, even though he wasn't. Sure, let's 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 mock him for it. I don't know. It's such a it's such an interesting thing to me because it's it's not even that this is a myth that really matters that much. It is, no. it is straight up. It is straight up wartime propaganda um, meant for for mocking purposes, and it yeah. was just so effectively done. It stuck, and it has stuck ever since. And I find that really fascinating. Like, I really don't think it would have taken off or lasted this long without that cartoon. It's like that is a, an essential part of it. Oh, 100%, because that brings that idea of him into sort of the mass media, into sort of mass consumption, right? Like, people are seeing that every single day, and it's yeah. it's it's critical. It's, it's you know, look, the, the average British person is not looking up Napoleon. Like, they don't have Google, right? Like, they can't Google how yeah. tall is Napoleon. But what they are seeing is political cartoons every couple of weeks of this man pitching a fit and looking about half the size of, you know, Sir William Pitt or whoever else is in the cartoon that week. Right. Yeah. And that's what sticks with people. It really, really is. Yeah. So that's the first myth I've got. Let's, uh, let's keep moving on. Cause I think that's been sufficiently debunked. Man was not short. Yeah. This one was actually your suggestion which uh, I really appreciated. I hadn't thought of it at all, which is um, carrots are good for your eyes. Oh, yes. This is a really good story. I love this one. See, it's a great story. This is a, this is a half myth. Uh, carrots are good for your eyes, specifically the, uh, the, the vitamin A and the beta carotene in carrots are very good for yeah. your eyes. What is a myth and what's stuck around maybe longer than it should have is a an idea that the more carrots you eat, the better your eyes will become. Mm -hmm. It's more of a lack of carrots are bad for your eyes than um, that more carrots are good for your eyes, I guess is the, is the easiest way to, to explain this, right? Like, yeah, it doesn't give you supervision. No, vitamin A deficiency is like, it's really bad for your eyes. Like one of the first mm -hmm. signs of it is uh, diminished night vision. Like you have a harder time seeing in low light conditions. And then if you continue to have a deficiency of vitamin A in your diet, um, it can eventually cause blindness, mainly due, as far as I can tell, to a buildup of keratin in your corneas. So they cloud over. So keratin, like the like stuff that. like in your fingernails and stuff, right? Yeah. And hair. Yeah. And your hair, it, it clouds your corneas because uh, beta keratin and vitamin A help your body keep the cornea clear. Um, okay. It's actually currently the leading uh, cause of childhood blindness in uh, certain parts of the world, specifically uh, Africa and Southeast Asia. Um, mm. This is a complete sidebar, but there's a really interesting project that's been going for a number of years now uh, it, it, to create something that's called golden rice, um, which is a oh, yeah. genetically modified form of rice, which uh, tastes and feels and acts cooks exactly the same as standard short grain white rice um, but it does have a golden hue to it and it is extremely rich in vitamin a and the hope is that if people will adopt this um, it will go a really long way towards combating vitamin a deficiency um, there hasn't been widespread uh, uptake of it mainly uh, I mean, there's there's a number of reasons, but the the um, the fact that it's genetically modified isn't helping things. 
Um, but it, it has the potential to do a lot of real good uh, in the world. Um, but we're not here to talk about golden rice. It's just something yeah. I found really interesting. Um, <laughs> let's talk about vitamins. What is a vitamin? Can you tell me that? Uh, it's it's a hard question, probably, right? Prob- probably not. Um, uh, I don't know. It's is it usually a mineral? Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. It's usually something called an. I'm going to get this wrong. I think it's an amine or an amine. Um, a m i n e. Think like thiamine. Okay. Um which is vitamin, it's one of the B vitamins, I can never remember which, doesn't really matter. When yeah. vitamins are originally, and that just means that it has, it's a molecule containing some ammonia. And okay. when they're first discovered, it's believed that all vitamins are going to have that ammonia uh, con, uh, 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 component. Um, and so they're, they're, it's a shortening of uh, vital amines or amines. Um, oh, okay. Eventually, it's discovered they don't all have that, but the name has already kind of caught on. They are yeah. they are um, chemical compounds that are uh, you know essential to our biology, right? Any time yeah. someone is deficient in one of these vitamins, you see uh, health detriments um, that are actually fairly obvious, I suppose. Like they're relatively easy to diagnose, and yeah. some of those deficiencies we've actually known about for a lot longer before we knew what a vitamin was right like we've known for it for much longer the 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 main like um, vitamin c for scurvy that's exactly the one that's been around the longest i think we're talking 18th century that people are realizing that it's really important to have fresh vegetables um in your diet for uh for vitamin c uh content and that people on long sea voyages deficient in this you get scurvy um another really common one would be vitamin d deficiency which causes something called rickets right but they don't necessarily realize what it is that's causing these only how to remedy it right so they don't understand the core mechanism they just understand the problem and the solution right Mm -hmm. all of the vitamins that we know today are discovered between 1910 and 1943 Oh, vitamins are a very recent discovery in terms of like nutritional health understanding. Hmm. And until the 1930s, the only way you could get vitamins is from specific foods that we understood to be high in those vitamins. So like they did not have Flintstone multivitamins. Back in the day, like it was just like you seem to have a vitamin C deficiency, you need to eat citrus, or you have a vitamin D deficiency, you need to take cod liver oil, um, okay. you know, stuff like that. And carrots was carrots were one of the uh, main uh, recommendations for vitamin A deficiency. Vitamin A having been discovered in and isolated in 1913. Okay, so okay. There's this understanding of there are these like very essential uh, nutritional elements and um, without them, you're going to die. But there is sort of this opposite effect that we talked about at the beginning that comes up, which is, well, if no vitamins is bad and some vitamins is good, more vitamins must be very good. And there's this whole... uh, 
I mean, the, the medical community does, of course, look at this to begin with, but there is also sort of this outcropping of medical adjacent industries, um, yep. snake oil salesmen, uh, yep. for the most part, who are uh, advocating for like a very heavy use of certain vitamins to uh, treat or prevent or enhance things that those vitamins are are not. They've That's not how they work. Yeah. Um, you know, mainly you just end up eliminating those without really doing anything over a certain amount. But anyways, in the 1930s, 1940s, there is this climate of we've discovered a bunch of things in the last 20 years. We know that being deficient in them can cause problems. Therefore, somebody who's getting enough of them will basically be as healthy as you can get, which is not true. But like that's kind of the attitude towards them. And what's more, in the 1930s, they start figuring out how to isolate either the vitamins themselves or precursors to those vitamins and put them into pill form, which is where you very much right. get this idea of like, well, who needs food anymore? We'll just take these nutrient pills. And like, it's very like, <laughs> I don't know, very, very Isaac Asimov, right? Like, it's very like, yeah, you know. I guess more varied the Jetsons than Isaac Asimov, but hey, it, it also feels like that's where the um, that whole in the in the fifties it was like really popular. Like vitamins were a big thing. Oh right? yeah, oh very much so. Yeah, yeah, and it it, it wasn't just in the fifties. This actually was uh, really catching on in the uh, in the nineteen thirties. Um, okay. You and know, I've talked about this actually quite extensively. Uh, can you think of any? Um, can you think of any societies in, in Europe that were obsessed with physical perse- uh, perfection uh, in the 1930s who might have been trying to, uh, you know, create a, some sort of like super uh, man of some sort and would be willing to look to technology, but also nature, ideally both yep. at the same time to do that if they could? Yeah, the Nazis loved the idea of, yeah. of, of vitamin pills, man. They were they were very, very interested in the capabilities of vitamins in what uh an excess of vitamins could do to enhance a person uh in terms of like their physique their their intellect all of this stuff right um yeah and one particular doctor who was uh really interested in this was a doctor theodore morell who had his own Mm -hmm. full line of uh, vitamin pills uh all of this stuff he also ended up being uh one of hitler's uh personal physicians and so this is the guy or one of the people that's that's, uh, you know, involved in the decision making process to just, you know, pump this man full of speed 24 seven. Right. So much math. <laughs> but he's also giving him a lot of vitamins like vitamins is a thing that they're very, very focused on. Right. Yeah. Let's cut to the blitz in 1940. Uh, the uh, Nazis had. Uh, taken France, basically the entire continent of Europe had fallen to the Nazis and their next target Mm -hmm. was Britain, but Hitler didn't want to invade across the channel. He wanted to basically soften them up with an air campaign to begin with. The main tactical response to this was to black out, uh, the, the cities in, in Britain to make it harder for bombers to find. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's a double-edged sword because when there are bombers incoming and you have no lights because you don't want to give away your position, it's really hard to see where the bombers are, right? Yeah. There is a ground radar that can allow uh, like a 
big radar station to see where planes are and then communicate yeah. it up to planes. But that doesn't necessarily help you find them in the pitch black, right? No. In 1939, the British had inv- had invented something known as airborne intercept radar, which is uh, a radar module that's small enough that it can actually be installed on a single fighter. Yes. The Germans did not have this capability. They didn't think that the technology could be miniaturized to that extent. Mm-hmm. And in 1940, in the midst of the Blitz, um, they st- they first started using this technology to uh, shoot down German bombers in the pitch black using radar only, using instruments only. Yeah, which is hard, but it's a lot easier than just kind of. It's, it's a lot easier than just doing it by eye. The trouble with the Second World War and uh, technological advances and things like that was that you sort of have all of these powers with two, like one foot in the past, one foot in the future. You see it a lot with Mm -hmm. code breaking as well, right? They didn't want to admit to Bletchley Park for decades afterwards because they didn't want to admit that they had won the war in part through espionage. Mm -hmm. Uh, It seemed dishonorable to them. So you wanted to make sure that you had a technical technological advantage over your enemy, but not so much of an advantage that they could surmise what type of advantage you had. Yeah. If, yeah, that if, if you, uh, if you play all your cards, then they know what cards you have. Yeah. That's a great way of putting even it. If you, even if, even if you win. Yeah. Yeah. hundred percent. So, the British have a problem, I guess, in that they're doing too good at night. Uh, I, there was the the, the first uh, the first pilot to ever take down one of these uh, German planes using radar. I, I forgot to write down his name. He had twenty confirmed uh, uh, kills. Uh, Nineteen of them were at night using radar. That's just statistically implausible without the use of this tool. Yeah. And so, like, the British knew that they had to account for this somehow, right? Enter the uh, the Ministry of Information, which sounds so sinister. Um, it's this ministry. Yeah, it's this ministry that's that's uh, responsible for wartime propaganda. Um, you know, it's it's. It, Information control is probably a better way of putting it. They yeah. um, they decide to put out. Uh, um, interviews basically with these with these pilots on how uh, they're able to do so well and I put these interviews into the papers and that's not normally a thing that you would like let slip but they sort of did it as like a human interest piece and basically had these pilots tell the papers that the reason that they were doing so well at night was because British doctors had discovered that if they eat if they had a an excess of, of vitamin A, it would actually improve their night vision. So they were eating a lot of carrots to keep their vitamin A intake uh, high. Yeah. And it worked, question mark? I mean, <laughs> it, whether it worked in terms of like the, the, the Germans bought it, that's questionable. Like there isn't a, we don't have yeah. like we don't have diaries from people being like, oh, we got to get our pilots on, you know, massive doses of vitamin A stat. We don't have any uh, uh, we don't really have any um, evidence that uh, the Luftwaffe started like changing the diets of their pilots or anything like that. But yeah. 
there are kind of two very direct uh, results of this. Number one, um, the Ministry of Information decides to like really run with this. And I think it's for, for ulterior motives as well, because they start like putting up posters, like lauding the, the health benefits of carrots and like how it'll help your eyesight. You know, our boys in the air depend on these. And I think a lot of it was doubling down. But also keep in mind that another effect of the blitz is that rationing is in effect for a, yeah. a number of years because of all of this. Right. And sugar is actually really hard to come by. And so carrots are being promoted as like a sweetening alternative because carrots are relatively high in sugar for a vegetable. OK. Yeah. Makes um, sense. There's a lot of weird like, you know, replace the sugar in X uh, uh, um, recipe with carrots type like homemaking magazines. Um, I don't know how good any of them are. You, you kind of would have thought beet more so than carrots. Uh, I'm sure beets were super popular there too, but I'm sure they were popular. They didn't have corn, so yeah, that's that's it. I think carrots are one of the easier ones to grow at home, like in a small garden. Oh, okay, um, yeah. not the beets aren't you know doable, but carrots yeah. are carrots are pretty easy to handle. Most people can handle a little bit of a carrot. <laughs> so, um, but anyways, it, it ties into this narrative though of the of the pilots, right? And so it solves it solves it solves a, a dual purpose. The other, and I mean, that's that's a lot of where this like idea, like carrots are good for your eyes, um, sticks around for a very, very long time. And again, not that they're bad for your eyes. They're not, not really doing anything past a certain, you know, daily yeah. recommended intake point. Um, but, you know, they, they create this character called Dr. Carrot who shows up in like British cartoons and like talks about how great they are for your eyes and whatever. They, they really yeah. run with it. <laughs> the other effect of this is that whether or not the Germans bought this as the reason that the British soldier, uh, uh, British pilots were doing so well, they don't figure out what it is that actually had them doing so well. And it's always a little bit hard to say, but we're fairly confident in this case that they did not realize the British had onboard radar because yeah. they don't actually start developing their own onboard radar until well into 1941 when there's actually a british plane that's shot down but stays enough intact that they're able to extract uh working or or recognizable at least yeah. radar module and begin kind of reverse engineering it and so german planes don't manage to deploy uh or widely deploy uh, onboard radar until 1943 that's almost a four-year delay over British wow. planes, which in a six-year war, that's massive. And especially how fast, uh, like the technological advancements in World War II were. Yeah, exactly. Like they were, they were fast. Yes, yes, very fast, very, very fast. So yeah, this idea that uh, carrots are great for your eyes, that they will improve your eyesight, uh, it, it is a myth, but it is like a very deliberate manipulation by a propaganda arm of the British government. And uh, I don't know, I guess they never thought to put out a correction at any point. <laughs> I don't know why you ever would. <laughs> or, I mean, even if they had at some point, it, it's so stuck in the, in the, the national consciousness at that point, right? Um, yeah, sort of like Napoleon being short. It's just there. It's out there. It is a, um, I mean, in the very original sense of it, it's a meme now. It is it an is idea. A meme. Yeah, that's it, it's an idea that exists in the world. It has a life of its own. <laughs> hey, Ethan, how long did people live in the past? Uh, it depends. 
It sure does. I <laughs> this this is a this is a two-parter. I am going to I am going to end up squarely straddling a fence by the end of all this. But yeah. there is a there is an idea out there that you know, any time before about 1900 or so, if you made a past 30, you were doing pretty good. Yeah. And no, that's not really true. A lot of that has to do with. I mean, it's a math problem, which historically large populations are not great at dealing with. <laughs> I'm sorry yeah. to say, but it's true. I mean, it's 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 an averages problem, right? Which is not human beings are not good at averages. No, they, they, they misinterpret that pretty easily. Like, like shockingly easily, like to the point where it's sometimes questionable how useful that is as a metric of anything. Sometimes it's the best we have, but you know, I, I, the, I've, I've heard a lot of really interesting arguments recently for averages actually being a pretty bad measurement anyways um i'm getting in off this topic. case it's definitely a bad measurement well let's talk about what's actually happening when we talk about life expectancy generally when people say life expectancy they mean something um that's specifically known as uh, average life expectancy at birth which is usually calculated retroactively as in when mm -hmm. the entire cohort has died yeah. Uh, they take everybody's information that they can find that was born in that year and say, well, if you were born in year X, you know, run your grade school average formula against it, right? Take the number, uh, take all the people, add up all the, the ages that they were when they died and divide it by the number of people you have. And that gives you the average, right? And it's it's got a lot of problems, <laughs> mostly because uh, medicine has come so far in the last hundred years or so. Um, yeah. And one of the biggest points of advancement has been uh, specifically infant mort mortality and a little bit more generally child mortality. The problem yeah. with an average is that if you have two people and one of them died as an infant and the other one lives to 100, your average is 50. And that doesn't actually describe yeah. the experience of either of those people. No. The other problem that arises here is that there's a bit of a contradiction in the way that average life expectancy is calculated over the course of someone's life, because it doesn't just stop with your uh, average life expectancy at birth, right? As soon as you make it past certain milestones, your life expectancy jumps significantly. Yeah, it goes way up. Let's use ancient Rome as an example, okay? Okay. And keep in mind, these numbers are like not great probably because we don't exactly have like you know everyone's death certificate or anything like that but yeah. at birth if you were born in the roman empire so basically okay. 2000 years ago at birth you had a 33 percent chance that you were not making it for past your first year okay. and your average life expectancy was between 20 and 33 okay that sounds really young that sounds like everybody's gonna die really young that doesn't mean that everyone died by 33, which is the way I think a lot of people read uh, average life, life expectancy for some reason. Yeah. I'm not sure why, but okay, putting <laughs> that aside. So we're starting with, let's say, uh, 33 uh, at the most uh, generous, right? Average life expectancy yeah. at, at age zero is 33. If you make it past your first year, your life expectancy jumps to about 34 to 42. Okay. So significant tack on an extra decade if you might make it past your first year 
Okay. If you make it to age five, your life expectancy, average life expectancy is between 45 and 50. So just making it to age five increases your life expectancy from 33 to 50. Wild. That's those that that's that's where all of those uh, childhood diseases come into play, right? Yeah. Um, if you make it to 40, you have a 50% chance of seeing age 60. If you make it to okay. 60, you have a 50% chance of seeing 72. Oh, wow. And if you make it to 70, you have a 50% chance of making it to 77. Wow. Here's the thing. The oldest people 2,000 years ago really weren't much younger than the oldest people today. I mean, yeah, like, yeah, they are by a bunch, but you had people making it into their 80s and 90s. Yeah. Like fairly like with with some fairly like credible sourcing going on here. Okay. Mm -hmm. So what that brings us to is a completely different measurement, which is maximum lifespan. This one is this this one's deceptive for a completely different reason, which mean which is that most people by definition will not make it to maximum lifespan. Yeah. So yeah. that's not the most helpful thing either. And here's where I'm going to switch gears a little bit, okay? Um I think people get to this point in their understanding of life expectancy and go, "Well, people in the Roman Empire made it to 90. Um it's not as though, you know, you know, most people are dying much, much, much earlier. Yeah, I mean, you could basically expect a much worse quality and length of life if you were born a long time ago. So um, it's it's become somewhat in fashion to say like, ah, average life expectancy, if you like take out the child mortality, is basically not that much changed. Yeah. This is very, very untrue. Yeah. It's very untrue. People didn't all die at 30. And it's not as though 30-year-olds were like looked at as like wise old grandparents, right? It's no. <laughs> just that there are so many more factors in the average person's life that could end a life prematurely that yeah. you are much more likely to die of what today we would call uh, preventable causes because we've learned how yes. to prevent them. And, yeah. you know, from a from an actuarial standpoint, like, yeah, your life probably isn't going to be that long, right? For yeah. uh, men, uh, work-related injuries or warfare-related injuries are much more likely. Um, yeah. For women, childbirth is an extremely dangerous yeah. uh, event in one's life. Um, those both tend to very much shorten people's life expectancies. Now, that's why if you get to, say, age 50 or so, your prospects are looking extremely good. Yeah. Um, you're past some of those risk factors. But, yeah, I mean, I guess I guess what I'm getting at here is that as much as we can sort of discount the whole um, infant mortality, child mortality um, factors here, like, mm -hmm. that's not, that's also not nothing, right? Yes, yeah. Public health initiatives in the 20th century um, have caused between a 25 and 30 year um, life expectancy, average life expectancy increase. And that comes almost entirely from uh, a couple of spots. Number one is a concentrated campaign against infant mortality, 
uh, at yeah. the beginning of the 20th century, basically you could expect about one in 10 infants would die within their first year. Oh. Uh, it's now below 1% in most places. Yeah. Um, and keep in mind, we're, we're talking on like a very global conception of all of this. There are specific places that do better and there are specific places that do much, much worse. Um, there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of this, uh, life expectancy stuff is also tied up in both like financial and medical inequities. Yeah. Um, for obvious reasons. Um, so yeah, there's, there's, uh, you know, improvement of the, um, dangers of childbirth, both for the mother and the, and the child. Um, women die a lot less often in childbirth, uh, infants uh are much more likely to live when they're born um mm -hmm. childhood vaccinations is a big deal um yeah there are a lot of diseases that's where that like age five thing comes in right like that's where, where everyone is getting all those uh you know the measles the mumps the rubella the you know all, all of oh, that wow. uh, you know scarlet fever all of those quote-unquote yeah. childhood diseases that were often very fatal um yeah diminishing those vaccinating for those that's had a massive impact on expected life or, or life expectancy um the discovery of penicillin has made uh accidents much safer um yeah. because a lot of times you don't die from a cut you die from the infection and being able to yeah. treat that infection uh, appropriately has been a big development um, yeah and then just beyond that yeah general medical improvements general and I, I mean, a very, very general uh, safety of the world has improved over the last century. There's a lot less warfare. Yeah. Um, you know, you're a lot less likely to, you know, be be kind of conscripted up and, and sent off to, you know, fight in a foreign war these days. Um, not that it never happens, but your odds are much better. Um, yeah. Militias these, aren't forming all the time. <laughs> yeah. I, you know your your general life expectancy is a lot better than your ancestors you have better nutrition yeah. you have better education you have um you know access to better medical care all of that stuff so it's not as though we're not doing better we're doing much much better but it's also not true to be like yeah everyone was was dropping dead at, at you know age 30 that's that's also not true as well uh, either so i i yeah like i said i at the beginning i end up kind of straddling a fence on this one a little bit right I think yeah. what it comes down to is that uh, if anything, if there's if there's one thing you should take away from this, the average life expectancy has a much smaller uh, what you would call in statistics standard deviation today. Okay, yeah. Than it did back then. You have yeah. a lot. You know the the you can expect to fall closer to the average life expectancy for your cohort than somebody born two hundred years ago could have. Because it's a skinnier bell curve, not yes, a wider one. Yes, that's exactly it. More people are falling closer to that average. So it's more yeah. it's more that we're better at dealing with those unexpected incidences that come up in life. Not that they never happen. Of course they do. But like those are the things that we've gotten better at over the last hundred years in terms of narrowing that that window. Um, so yeah. making sure more people come closer to that expected average uh, over time. So that's that's life expectancies. It's a complicated topic. It's sort of almost history adjacent more than anything. It's if anything, it's about yeah. medical history. But, um, you know, it, it really it really is a, a tricky one in terms of con uh, conceptualizing how like what our, our ancestors lives looked like, you know, what they could expect 
uh, for themselves mm-hmm. or for their children, right? Like it's it's a very different uh, idea. It's a lot riskier back then. Um, yeah, but that doesn't I mean think... that no one no one ever grew old. You know, no one ever had a long life. Yeah. I think uh, a good point you raised there is like uh, when we're talking about life expectancy at like 33 or whatever, you mentioned like 33 year olds aren't wise and and like looked at as at the end of their lives. Those ages still feel very, very much like what they are today. But yeah, (laughs) you're not you're not looking to the to the 30 year old for sage wise advice yeah it's not they're they're not the village elders there no Um, and i think in terms of of why this myth has perpetuated i think a lot of it is just this looking down on people in the past right like we really want to think of history as a general upwards trend right like Mm -hmm. like everything about the past must be worse um yeah and we got to be careful about that because like, really, really, if you took a, a child from, you know, if you got in a time machine, went back 3000 years, grabbed that kid, gave him the same vaccines as everybody else, brought him back here, um, mm-hmm. gave him the same education, gave them the same uh, opportunities of, as everybody else, you would not see a difference, period. They are they are uh, physically yep. and, and physiologically identical. They would they would have the same shot. Um, yeah. It's just, it really is a matter of circumstance. Yeah. Why don't we take a quick break there? And uh, when we come back, I've got a, a couple more myths for you. Back on HI 101 here with Ethan Blesky. Hi. Hello. And we've been talking about historical myths. Um, Let's keep going on this trend uh, that we left off with on the last one of kind of just assuming that because things like because some things get better, that if you look backwards, everything was just worse. Yeah. And how that's not necessarily true. Like people. <laughs> intelligence is a funny thing, right? Like it's a it's a quality that like is so like people struggle so hard to try and define it in some way that's meaningful. And it's just so mm-hmm. slippery, right? Um, almost everything that we could measure in terms of like people becoming more intelligent, um, I think is better described as having a larger body of work to draw on, if that makes sense. Um, more experience, more, uh, cumulative knowledge, like a lot, a lot of that is what we're talking about when we talk about, um, improving intelligence over time. Um, if I could see farther, it was because I was standing on the shoulders of giants. Correct. Isaac yeah. Newton, which he ripped off from somebody else, I believe. Um, which, I think so. Which is about right, you know? Um, yeah. Th- I mean, that's... It's <laughs> it in, fits. It's in the spirit of the saying. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm saying all of this like I'm setting up something huge and, and monumental. I'm not. I, what I would actually like to talk about right now is sensible basics in fashion. Oh, Okay, that's that's not where I thought this was going, but okay. <laughs> Let's talk about corsets real quick. Oh, okay. You know, it's it's funny when when there's uh, when there's any sort of period piece. Um, doesn't really matter which period it's set in. Um, for for film, uh, there's probably going to be a corset, and there's probably going to be something in there about um, how uh, painful and restrictive and possibly dangerous they are. Um, <sighs> definitely uncomfortable. Definitely uncomfortable. Yeah. And this, this 
particularly bugged me. <laughs> then we're going to be on the same page. Um, yeah. Because it's one of those things where it is it is very much in that category of historical myth where if you ask anybody workhorse it's comfortable they're going to say no and when you ask them how they know that then they're going to have to pause for a second it is just <laughs> sort of there in the ether it is knowledge everyone kind of just has yeah it's wrong it's wrong it's wrong is the short <laughs> answer um Look, the corset is, is I mean, if you want to be really specific, the corset really came into being like beginning of the 19th century, but like the precursors yeah. to corsets, um, stays and things like that. Yeah. Women have been wearing them since like the 16th century. Um, they start yep. off as kind of a, a very like simple, like conical shape. And they, they sort of refine from there as you get different materials, different tailoring uh, uh techniques and as as fashions change right because corsets yeah. are uh at their essence um a combination of undergarment and shapewear yeah it's really it's really that simple it's really not that complicated and most women would wear a corset most of the time in the 19th century in the west um mm -hmm. there is uh, you know a lot of people will point to uh a practice known as tight lacing um, as evidence of how harmful uh, corsetry could be. Um, and this is a this is a trend that like it especially took off in the 19th century with um, weirdly enough with the invention of steel grommets for the laces of a corset. Oh, yeah, that totally makes sense. Well, because then you could get like enough purchase to like really lace in a corset, right? Yeah, um, it's it's got the strength to yeah, to hold it in place. Exactly. Um, here's the thing about tight lacing, which is also sometimes referred to as waist training, uh, things like that. Mm -hmm. It was not common. In fact, it was considered extremely uncommon and kind of repugnant to a lot of people. Like, you know how most of the time you'll see stuff about straight lacing on like a, a show on the learning channel. Yeah. Like that's basically exactly the same attitude that people in Victorian era would have <laughs> towards it. Um, it was seen as really weird um often like kind of tied to like vanity but also like a little bit like weirdly self-harmful yeah and that's important to understand when contrasting that to the way that most women wore corsets day to day i don't want to give the impression that like wearing a corset is like a perfectly like you don't even realize it's there they're not track pants no they're, they're absolutely not but like <laughs> the the things or the ways in which they sort of restrict you we're seen as net positives by most people. So, for example, it's really hard to slouch in a corset, which gives you just yeah. better posture, which, yeah. like, yeah, that's most people would consider that a good thing, right? It's it's also, yeah, I mean, it's it's also one aspect of the elements of women's fashion in the 19th century that go into creating the silhouettes of the days, which, again, vary widely across uh, the 19th century. There isn't like a one yeah. 19th century look, right? Um, nope. But, you know, in eras where like a very slim waist and very wide hips are considered fashionable, for example, yes, there are corsets that help to accentuate the waist. They also pad the hips. Yep. But there are other fashion tricks happening here. 
Um, lots. <laughs> lots. Well, and I mean, there, there's there's some there's, there's some very fundamental questions that people need to ask themselves about corsets and about human beings that like very quickly pull apart the whole idea of like the the incredibly like disfiguring disruptive corset such as for example if pads exist to reshape the silhouette without tight lacing then why would people bother going to the trouble of tight lacing instead (laughs) most people wouldn't things like well, if they say that, that women couldn't breathe in corsets, then why were working class women wearing corsets to work in very physically demanding jobs? Why were they wearing them for sports? Yeah. <laughs> uh, like, you know, like it's, it's very, it's very simple things. And then here's, here's a, here's a really important question for you. Why, if they were so damaging to the human body, why isn't every human skeleton from the 19th century every uh, of, of someone who wore a corset therefore deformed by that corset wearing why isn't every single one of those skeletons deformed because they're not yeah they're not they're not so like it's just it's just kind of not true so where do we get this idea that corsets are harmful i think that's a more interesting question to be honest uh, i I've just got two points really quick. Oh, please uh, go ahead. To, to just add on to just add on to that whole thing is it's like they weren't pre-made. They were made to your body. Yes, that's correct. They were actually quite expensive. They were they're they're expensive to make because they're they're tailored to your to your body, the one the person that's wearing it. Mm-hmm. So it's not like you're just going to a store and pulling one off the rack and hoping you fit into it and just squeezing into it if you don't it's Mm. it was made for you (laughs) yeah so it it fit your size and shape well and i mean there's a certain there's a certain aspect to this too of like yeah and and and, you know bodies change over time and things like that but there is also room for adjustment there right Um, oh yeah even within this tailor-made corset we've already talked about the lacing um yeah the lacing is there for adjustability like this is this is this is you know there's a certain similarity to saying that you know, uh, sneakers are are harmful because if you tie the the laces too tight, you know, it, it hurts your feet and cuts off blood flow. And it's like, well, yeah, don't tie it like that. Like, don't don't do that. Yeah. And most people wouldn't. Yeah. You you tie it to where it's comfortable, to where it's supposed to be. Anyways. We're getting a little yeah. off topic. We're getting a little ranty yeah, here. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. No, it's it's fine. I think it's I think it's well worth discussing though. Um, yeah. Look, there's a couple of things that go into uh, the the reputation of corsets. Okay. Um, mm-hmm. Number one. Very briefly, uh, the medical establishment and its relationship to women, especially in the 19th century, um, but not not in any way restricted to the 19th century is absolutely heinous. It's, 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 it's disgraceful how little, uh, doctors knew or cared to know about women's bodies and how many, uh, assumptions they made about how they worked. Um, mm-hmm. they did not have a good understanding of any of this stuff and they just sort of made stuff up. There was this idea that women's bodies were too fragile for the very strong, corsets and the the forces they exerted on women's bodies that they were actually physically 
um, you know, deforming ribs and shifting the position of, of, uh, organs within the woman's body. And yeah. like, th there was this notion, this broader no notion in uh, medical science at the time that um, the organs of a woman's body just sort of floated around in there <laughs> in in ways that men's didn't for some reason. And like, don't don't get me wrong. Like if you if you are actually tight lacing, it will shift uh, your organs somewhat. Um, I've seen it sort of described as analogous to the way that your organs can shift during pregnancy. Um, so yeah. like there is, there's a little bit of that, but like, again, most people are not tight lacing. Like, yeah, it, it keeps, it, you know, it, it keeps certain things a little bit more, uh, restricted. So like you can't take as full of a breath, for example, but it's not actually having these like you know, there were doctors who were claiming that wearing corsets every day would uh, cut your liver in half because it cinches at about the point where your liver is. That wasn't happening. You die. <laughs> um, there was this whole trend of like kind of fake fainting in the 19th century that was sometimes attributed by doctors to corsets. That's not true. It, that was a social thing. Um, yeah. It was a way of of communicating uh helplessness i suppose in a social setting it's fun and dramatic it wasn't the course it's fault no also the medical establishment was just generally critical of any women's activities like especially if it involved it involved like physical exertion and so there was this whole like you know wow women can't do sports in a corset it'll you know, do whatever to whatever, like it, it like take your pick. Honestly, like everything was blamed yeah. on corsets in, in this era by the medical establishment. Uh, you know, what wasn't criticized by the medical establishment was, uh, men's corsets, which I forgot to mention earlier, were absolutely a thing in the 19th century. Uh, oh, yeah. men wore shapewear too. Um, quite often actually. Um, but it was not seen as harmful to their, to their, physique because they're men so there's the medical establishment just doing a, a horrific job of understanding half the population's uh physiology yeah um you also have a really interesting time in uh the women's rights movement at the end of the 19th century um specifically like first wave feminism and the suffrage movement any any time in history when you have uh, a, a group angling for uh expanded rights um generally speaking you will have people uh doing everything in their power to criticize them uh on whatever vector they can find and yeah. in the 19th century um i say that as though that's special uh anytime but especially in the 19th century women's fashion was a vector for that criticism mm. as in you know and and let, let me be very clear this is this is <laughs> This is a, a criticism of the time, but they would point to the supposed ridiculousness of women's fashion and say, well, you know, if they're making those fashion decisions, do we want them having the vote and things like that, which isn't an argument at all. But hey, here we are. Um, so you have uh, men who are repeating the talking points of doctors about how harmful corsetry is and how silly it is that women would subject, uh, subject themselves to it. You also have uh, women within the suffrage movement who are actively rejecting corsets basically on the same merits. They have bought into these same talking points of corsetry as being a symbol of oppression. 
Some of them also just find corsetry uncomfortable, which is fair. Like the 1870s, 1880s corsets were kind of the most slim-waisted period they'd had in a very, very long time. Um, Yeah. So you have a lot of uh, suggestions for... Uh, there's actually an entire movement known as uh, Victorian dress reform, where they're basically going, let's find more uh, natural silhouettes, let's find comfort- more comfortable clothing, uh, less restrictive uh, fashion, things like that, which is really interesting in and of itself. But the effect that it has on corsets is mainly one where uh, it makes uh, women who like wearing them uh, feel worse about it. And yeah. It discredits women who don't like wearing them. And like the whole thing just sort of gets muddled rather than like a nice, clean, like break from this oppressive garment sort of thing, which is what they were angling for. Mm -hmm. Women keep wearing corsets into the 20th century, despite all of this criticism from both sides. Really, what kills the corset in women's fashion is the invention of cheap elastic. Yeah. Shapewear moves from uh, rigid. Uh, items like corsets to more elastic uh, items like girdles yeah now we have spanks now we have spanks that's that's exactly what they turn into we've that's it's been that for a full century now um there is also you know changing uh silhouettes you get into the 20s with the very like straight silhouette and things like that uh really helps kill it off anyways that's that's the second thing is this 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 movement that sort of ties um, like ideologically ties the corset to the oppression of women in society, um, regardless of the reality that most women would have felt uh, towards the garment itself. Okay. Yeah. The third factor that really, really uh, affects how we look at the corset today is um, I know this is going to come as a shock, but media lies to us a lot about corsets. <laughs> and in more ways than you might necessarily realize. Um, for example, uh, you'll look at a photograph of a Victorian woman and she'll have it just the tiniest waist you've ever seen. And if you don't really take the time to look at it, you'll go, wow, they really did crank on those corsets. That's crazy. And if you actually take a look, sometimes they're wearing a dress that has like, you know, on sportswear these days, they'll have like the the cutouts on the side to make you look like you know, for, for men's sportswear, they'll have it set so, like, your shoulders look wider and your waist looks slimmer. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's just, like, yeah. the color pattern on it. So yeah. they would have photographs taken against black backgrounds with dresses with a black cutout for that, that hourglass waist. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's really effective, though, because the, the photographs were kind it of works. grainy. Um, yeah. There was also just, like, straight up, like, photo manipulation back then. Yeah. I, I think people think that like no one manipulated a photo before 1993. <laughs> I, I know I'm, I'm, I'm saying that and it sounds ridiculous, but like, it's like, there is that sense like, Oh, this is too long ago for anybody to have touched up. And that's not true at all. Those photo photographs were very much touched up. Um, when they've actually gone back and done like, like there are fashion museums who have hundreds and thousands of corsets, like actual corsets worn by real women. Yeah. And what they find, what they find is that the average waist size of a woman, you know, 150 years ago was a couple inches smaller than now. Like not a lot, not as much as you'd expect. No. Like two or three inches. And like, honestly, a lot of them were really malnourished. Um, <laughs> like it's, it's not, it's not about the, you know, 
Like people aren't walking around with 18 inch waists. It just didn't happen. There's also like fashion plates, which is uh, what you call it, where like instead of like having a runway model, they would just like draw uh, models wearing these these uh, designs. Yeah. And they're yeah. all drawn as like extremely thin. And like, again, there's this sort of sense of like, well, why would they why would they lie about this? And like the, the, the question like to ask back is like, well, why wouldn't they? Like that's yeah. that's always how fashion has been, um, you know. And then finally, like modern media, like we've just had this idea of the of the of the corset as as torturous. And like, I mean, it starts with like Gone with the Wind, maybe even earlier, right? Like the yeah, you you, you every every time you see a movie with them, they have this scene of like, you know, she you know she the woman's like hanging onto like the bedpost while the while the maid just like hauls on the laces, right? Which by yeah. the way, they they go out, not back. Um, small detail it's just they, they always get that wrong um yeah you know it's not that's that's not how you put that on any more than you would your your, your shoes as i said like that's just not yeah. how it works but like it's 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 transformed into like this this sort of double standard in fashion where like you'll have interviews with um with an actress about like playing a period piece and she'll talk oh i couldn't even sit down in a course at oh i couldn't breathe in well I, I mean number one yes they are restrictive but like you haven't like they haven't put any time into like learning how to wear one. Right. And yeah, I know that seems kind of counter to my point, but like, imagine like putting high heels on for the first time, like on screen, like it's not yeah. going to go well. Like it's a thing that you need to learn how to wear properly. It's going to, yes. it's yeah. going to hurt. It's going to be unsteady. It's going to look bad. Like you need, you need some practice with it to, to have it be like a natural part of you. Plus a lot of those corsets don't really look fitted properly. Um, but yeah, anyway. that's, that's a big one mm. for sure. But like you, you have this perpetuation and, and then these same actresses will go, you know, walk a, a red carpet in a structured dress. Yeah. <laughs> and like, you know, like, I, I mean, I'm, you know, it's, it's no, it's no one individual's fault. It's just like, that's, it's become this like reflexive talking point. Like it's, it's like discussing the weather, right? Oh, you're in a period yeah. piece. Tell me how bad the corset was. Like, yeah, it's just conversational at this point. And that's really just it's, not it's the how exact same as superhero movies and their uncomfortable outfits. It's or their workout routine, right? Yeah. Or their, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and I mean, anyways um the point being these are regular clothes that regular women wore every single day um were they sometimes uncomfortable absolutely could they actually cause real problems uh, yeah actually um if you wore a corset every day it could be very hard to move to not wearing a corset because occasionally people who wore corsets would have underdeveloped uh core muscles because the corset mm -hmm. would do such a good job helping them sit straight um, so they'd have to like learn how to hold their, their torsos up straight again. Um, some people would argue that it made certain infectious diseases worse because they couldn't take as deep a breath. Um, tuberculosis was one that comes to mind. Um, oh, okay. but again, like we're, we're being very, very picky about like, I mean, honestly, like if you put jeans on that are too tight, you can pinch a nerve, right? Like, yeah. like sometimes, sometimes the clothes that we wear are not great for us. And honestly, it is very, very recent in fashion history that all of our clothing became like extremely elastic. Um, yeah. You know, it's 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 a it's a it's a bad it's a bad take on fashion history to look at corsetry as 
a like a physically oppressive uh, device. Is there like really complicated um, you know gender dynam dynamics in fashion history? Absolutely. Um, is the corset the only thing that we're allowed to criticize under that lens? Not really. It's it's not really what that was for anybody that actually used them. Yeah. So, anyways, that's my spiel about corsets. <laughs> this is fun. I'm talking about all sorts of stuff that I really wouldn't have time to dive into on other episodes. Where would I talk yeah. about this? I don't know. <laughs> Can we talk about the library at Alexandria real quick? Okay. What? Tell me what you know about the library at Alexandria. Uh, it had accumulated all of the knowledge of the ancient world. Uh-huh. And then what happened? It got burnt down. That's right. What a what a tragic loss for humanity. It was all gone. All of it was gone. Let's talk about the uh, let's talk about the library there for like the, the, the Alexandria is a really interesting uh, place in the world. I mean, it, it's founded in uh, 331 BCE by Alexander the Great. Is only time in Egypt he never comes back, and like within a century <laughs> becomes the largest uh, city in the, or one of the largest cities in the in the ancient world. Like very, very quickly grew. And it was it was a really important port town, correct? Yeah, it was, but it was also like a very important center of Greekness in Egypt. Yes. Because Egypt had been like it had been in a bad way for a while now. And the you know, when Alexander dies, his one of his generals takes over and declares himself Pharaoh. This is uh, Ptolemy the first. Uh yep. and the, the Ptolemaic pharaohs are all Greek pharaohs, right? Yes. A lot of what they wanted to do with Alexandria was to establish, I suppose one could call it cultural imperialism over Egypt, because Egypt okay. has a long, rich cultural history. And that's kind of hard to rule as an outsider. So either you can be yeah. native or you can try to um, kind of bend them to your own cultural will. And these guys followed Alexander. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, part of that cultural hegemony is the library, right? Library, like, it's not like the first library that ever existed or anything like that. It was meant as a center of Greek learning to bring as many Greek scholars to Alexandria as possible to, uh, expose the locals to Greek, uh, learning, things like that. It's very much a matter of like needing to build a library that can match the legacy of Egyptian culture. And that's why it gets okay. so big so fast. Um, it really focuses the, the library and, and sort of the direction of the library really focuses on like older works. They had this idea that less copying meant more fidelity. Um, and really focused on Greek works. And so they would requisition uh, scrolls that were as old as possible because they thought of that as being uh, the most accurate. Um, it got to a point where when ships would enter the harbor at Alexandria, guards would get onto the ship and look for any scrolls that were there. And, and copy if, them out. Well, if they found them, they would take them to the library. The library would copy them and then return the copies to the ships and keep the originals. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it kind of sucked. Um, but like the, the, the library is interesting in that, like, you know, they didn't really have um, a lot of other libraries were uh, they were associated with like a specific 
scholar or a, a specific philosophical school or something like that that really guided their work. Yeah. Alexandria didn't have that. So in very relative terms for the ancient world, they had fairly wide academic freedom, which is really, really interesting. And because they ended up having so many different works at the same place, um, the, the main sort of innovation that comes out of Alexandria is uh, literary criticism. They basically invent okay. the genre. Not exactly, okay. but like they are they quickly become the center for literary criticism, as in writing books about other books. This is where you start getting people writing things about Homer or using Homer to write about other stuff. Right. Okay. Um, there, I saw an example of like someone who wrote a treatise on ancient medicine based on the wounds described in uh, the Homeric uh, poems. Which is kind of an interesting idea. Yeah. After about 100 years or so, um, the Ptolemies don't have quite as strong a hold on Egypt as they formerly had. Um, and by about 200 BCE, um, they start kind of de-emphasizing that Greek heritage that had been such a feature uh, up until now. And yeah. That also meant less focus on the library. It starts getting less funding, less prestige, has less power. Um, this library is big, by the way, and it's part of a, a larger complex of uh, museums and, and uh, schools and things like that. But mm -hmm. it's just not really getting the same level of support from the Ptolemies. And so scholars start leaving, sometimes working at other libraries. It's no longer the the preeminent library to work at for Greek works. Yeah. Okay. And they start taking some of their work with them, usually in copies, but they take it with them. In 160 BCE, uh, Ptolemy VIII, um, there was a, Ptolemy VII was murdered. There was a whole political intrigue we don't need to get into, but one of the, um, head or the head librarian of the library at Alexandria at the time, uh, had been supporting a political enemy of Ptolemy VIII. And so as a reaction, Ptolemy VIII decided to expel all foreign scholars from the library. So nobody who wasn't Egypt was, a, nobody uh, who wasn't Egyptian was allowed to work at the library anymore. And uh, he basically turned the, the, post of head librarian, which up until then had actually been like a, an academic position with like a mission and, you know, a vision, uh, yeah. turned it into basically a political post. Oh, okay. like, like a captain of the guard got set as yeah. head librarian, like stuff like that. It, it, it was no longer. Yeah. It was, it was more just like a social, uh, honor. Yeah. 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 Very much. So this, like it had already started, this really brought about a diaspora of scholars and of works. People just started leaving the library. It was like, this is not worth it. I'm not working for some guard. He doesn't know what he's doing. Um, yeah. And so a lot of the stuff leaves the school. There's there is good scholarship that's still happening at the library at this point. Like there's a, I think notably there's a, um, uh, a book on grammar, like Greek grammar that would be basically used to teach essentially every Greek child grammar uh, that's written in and around this period. Okay. Um, but like, that's the exception, not the rule at this point. Yeah. 
And then we jumped to like more than a century later, 48 BCE. So we've had an exodus of scholars for 150 years. Yeah. In 48 BCE, the, the, the city is besieged by Julius Caesar as part of the civil wars. He uh, starts a fire at the port. And yep. it's kind of unclear from the records whether what happens next is that the fire destroys a warehouse associated with the library that, that contains some scrolls or whether the fire spread up to the library, which is, is plausible given the, the placement in the city. Um, mm -hmm. But it only partially damaged the library. Um, a lot of scrolls are lost. Like it's it's something like it's it's tens of thousands of scrolls, which is that's that's massive at this point in time like that's a lot of yeah. work um yeah. but it's not the whole library like to the point where like within the next 10 years there are other contemporary accounts of visiting the library to do scholarly work and so maybe it was rebuilt maybe it was just repaired and kept going maybe there wasn't really a whole lot of a loss uh at all maybe those were scrolls that weren't weren't particularly valuable off to one side we're not entirely sure yeah um but what is true is that the library keeps going Again, yeah. very much diminished in status, very much uh, not the only repository of any of these places. Um, really, you get to a, sp a point where by the second century CE, um, the library has been completely overshadowed by other libraries uh, in terms of prestige, uh, other libraries elsewhere in the Roman Empire. It's at this point, like an, an Alexandrian scholar is like... It's referring to critical scholarship, but it's also kind of got a connotation of like very like stuffy and like stale scholarship, like okay. old, old fashioned. Like it would be kind of similar okay. to how we would use the word Byzantine. Okay. Yeah. You know, like not exactly the same sense, but like this idea of like it has a sense other than from Byzantium. Yeah. Um, and by the end of the second century, or by the end of the third century, sorry, um, you know, the, the Roman Empire is falling apart. There are civil wars. Uh, there are a series of sieges of Alexandria because it's broken away from the, uh, because Egypt is broken away from the Roman Empire proper. And um, one of two of those sieges by Roman uh, emperors uh, is likely the the last straw. Probably destroyed what was left of that library. Yeah. Did the library contain every work of human knowledge at a certain point in time? Probably not. Um, there no. was the estimates range between like forty thousand, four hundred thousand uh, scrolls, which is a lot. Yeah. But. Keep in mind how they got those scrolls. They were copied. Yeah. That, if anything, that is the biggest um, accomplishment of the library at Alexandria. This uh, culture in academia of copying works, of proliferating works, yeah. uh, of spreading works around. That, if anything, is the main accomplishment of that library the fact that that building was eventually burned down um kind of inconsequential because we have records of or i mean you know it's impossible to say there's it's entirely possible that there are works that were lost in that fire and uh there was no other copies in the world mm -hmm. but also probably not like 
almost certainly not. There was yeah. almost certainly other copies elsewhere. Um, you know, I, I think I think it's wrong to think of libraries as a place of like preservation of knowledge, um, especially at this period in time. Okay. Yeah, because they are so vulnerable in this place. Like if if we're talking about like a horde, right? Like if we're talking about just gathering things and putting them in one place, like if anything, that just makes that knowledge more vulnerable. And if that's all the library had done, then yeah, we probably would have been in a much worse place in terms of losing very important works. But that's actually not what happened. Libraries are for dissemination of knowledge. That's exactly it. And yeah. Alexandria was very successful at that. In fact, it encouraged that in a way that previous libraries hadn't necessarily. It's a it's mm -hmm. a model of academic library that is foundational to academia today, right? Um, yeah. You need to you need to share that knowledge around. You need to put it in different places. You need to make sure other people understand it. Mm -hmm. There's a I mean, there's a there's a legend, there's a story that is almost certainly mythical that the library still existed and was burned um, during the uh, Muslim conquests in the seventh century. Um, those accounts were written in like the thirteenth century. <laughs> it's almost certainly made up lies for status, basically. Yeah. Yeah. You want to be careful with stories about the Library of Alexandria that it's not being held up uh, as a symbol of of purity, I suppose. Um, yeah, which is a thing that happens from time to time. It's 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 a pitfall that has existed for hundreds of years now, ever since the Renaissance. We we sure yeah. do love the Greeks and the Romans <laughs> and think uh, they can do no wrong. Keep in mind that it is almost certainly Romans that actually destroyed the uh, the library itself. Yeah. Um, yeah. But more importantly, anytime I see somebody kind of doing the like, oh, if you could go back in time and see anything or do anything and somebody goes Library of Alexandria, I kind of go, eh, I mean, I guess. Like, it sounds interesting. It'd be cool. But you're very, very unlikely to actually find anything there that doesn't exist elsewhere already. That's sort yeah. of its deal. So all of human knowledge. It'd be knowledge... real useless to me because I don't read it. <laughs> Greek. <laughs> <laughs> that too. <laughs> yeah, that too. So no, all of human knowledge was not lost in one big fire at the Library of Alexandria. Instead, it sort of just went away. It just sort of left over centuries and centuries of uh, underfunding, <laughs> which, is maybe oh, no. a more, which is maybe a more valuable lesson today. <laughs> Um, hey, do you know who, uh, do you know who once studied at the, uh, the library of Alexandria? This is the closest thing I have to a uh, transition today. You're not going to guess. Uh, it's a Greek scholar named, uh, Eratosthenes. Oh, okay. Do you know who Eratosthenes was? No, no, I, I accidentally got him mixed up with Aristophanes. Oh, no, different dude. Eratosthenes. Different, different, sounds similar, but yeah. 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 Eratosthenes is all about the geography. Oh, OK. And Eratosthenes is very important to our next topic, which is um, that everybody thought that the Earth was flat until Columbus tried sailing around it. No. <laughs> Listen, I'm not 
people people right now just went because they want me to get mad about Columbus. I, this isn't about Columbus, okay? Um, no, I don't really want to talk about him that much beyond uh, what I want to talk about with this, like the, the flat Earth topic. People yeah. have known that the world was round for like a really long time, and the yeah. like the ways that they figured them out is is, is even more interesting, right? We have evidence going back to like the 5th century BCE by Greek philosophers claiming that the earth was a sphere. Yeah. They didn't have a proof at that point, but it's been speculated that it's possibly there there's two there's two options here. One, uh Greek colonization um spanned like a pretty far uh uh way north to south. So yeah. They have, you know, on the northern coast of Africa, they also have as far north as Crimea. That's, yes. Yeah. That's a big change in latitude. You're going to see differences yeah. in um, in the sky because of that. And plausibly, you could have people who would travel to both extremes of that. Yeah. The second possibility is that we have pretty good evidence that in about the 6th century BCE, Phoenician sailors managed to circumnavigate Africa. Oh, cool. Um, I did not know that. <laughs> all of our evidence is indirect, circumstantial, but mm -hmm. it's also the type of thing that like would be hard to make up if you didn't actually know something about going south of the equator. If that makes sense. Yeah. Like there are yeah. accounts from the Phoenicians talking about seeing the sun uh, to the north which is the thing that's going to happen when you're south of the equator, right? Yeah. Why would you even think of that if you had only ever seen the sun to, your, to the south? Yeah. You know? Like, it's, it's, yeah. it's stuff like that. It doesn't really matter how they figured it out initially. Um, Eratosthenes, who, who studied at the Library of Alexandria periodically, um, actually devised a mathematical proof. And... Um, the, his exact method was, uh, lost, but a simplified version of it was kept. Essentially what he did was he, uh, waited till the summer solstice, went to a city that was believed to be on the tropic. Um, so that's the point where on the solstice, the sun is directly, uh, above like overhead. Yep. Yep. And, uh, using that marked out uh, a staff like at an angle making sure that there was no shadow yep okay then he uh took that same staff and traveled to a city that was believed to be on the same meridian uh just north uh okay. fa far enough like several degrees of latitude that he could then uh measure that same staff again on the solstice and see the angle that the shadow made Okay, so Perfect. what that gives him is the angle of latitude change. Yeah. And he's got the linear distance traveled between the two cities. Yeah. And he can extrapolate from there. We've lost uh, some of the unit conversions that are involved here. Um, mm -hmm. But as best we can tell, his estimate was, with, was between... Uh, was within one to fifteen percent of the actual circumference of the Earth. That's so close. That's really, really close. This happened twenty three hundred years ago. Incredible. We've known for a really long time. So by the time you get to like the Roman world, it is basically 
a given that the, the the earth is round okay yeah um the greeks aren't the only ones that believe this this makes its way to uh india where this is given as col- common knowledge we're not sure if it comes from the greeks or if it was developed at around the same time as the greeks but yeah. everyone in india believed that the earth was round as well um i saw a really uh uh, a really lovely, actually, description of the movement of the the stars in the sky, and compared it to uh, being on a boat in the river and seeing like the trees go by, and it sort of looks okay. like the trees are moving, but you're the one that's moving. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know. I really like that. It's it's an aside, but like that understanding of the Earth being round and spinning uh, was very yeah. much there, minimum sixteen hundred years ago. What's more, this knowledge isn't lost through the medieval period. There is this tendency to, and we we talked about it earlier already, there's this tendency to kind of want to think that ancient people were stupid. Yeah. And a lot of that comes from like the propaganda of the Renaissance around the medieval period, right? Like the Dark Ages, all of that stuff. This idea that we fell into a a period of of, uh, intellectual darkness. And I mean, putting aside all the problems that that has with you know intellectual pro- progress in the in the islamic world and elsewhere in the world yeah. all of that stuff like it's it's actually just also not that true in europe either yeah. um there's very good evidence to to show that it's not just like academics that kept this idea alive so it's not only you know the the universities of europe that are keeping this idea alive like we uh i saw evidence for there was a there was a homily written by a bishop to his contra- uh, his congregation um, and it was in uh, German, I think it was. Um, so it's not even being done in Latin. Like it's for, it's for the common people. Uh, referencing the Earth being round is like a, a given. Like this wasn't like controversial knowledge, right? Like it was something that the average person understood about their cosmology. Yeah. So we never lost this. Um, the the islamic world used this knowledge to uh calculate the uh shortest distance and direction to mecca from anywhere on the earth which is a yep. quintessentially islamic use of this this knowledge i i really love that um yeah but uh you know they they had the they had the tools both through astronomy and through uh math to to figure that stuff out with pretty good accuracy yeah ironically uh the only large civilization at the time who clung onto a flat earth model uh past the time of columbus uh was the chinese okay a lot of that has to do with the fact that their cosmology didn't really it was a lot more philosophical than it was uh practical or scientific um, yeah it, it, it's more about how their worldview fits into confucianism for the most part than than necessarily an accurate model of the cosmos um and even then, there are there are Chinese scholars who are suggesting a round Earth model as early as like the 11th century. Uh, okay. It doesn't it doesn't become like widespread knowledge or or, or acceptance uh, that the Earth is round until probably about the 17th century. So so the reason that I'm I'm bringing all of this up is this whole there's this myth that everyone when when Columbus was going off to find the New World, everyone thought he was going to sail off the edge of the ocean. Um. That's not true at all. Uh, nobody thought that that was going to happen. The misunderstanding about the construction of our world at the time wasn't that it was flat versus round. It was 
nobody expected there to be a landmass in between Europe and Asia. Yeah. And it was believed that it was so far that no one could sail that long, uh, carrying enough provisions to survive. Okay. Um, because it's about 20,000 miles from Spain to Japan, give or take, uh, assuming that there's no yeah. landmass land mass in between. Yeah, that's, that's a long way. It's a very, very long way. The Pacific Ocean is enormous. Um, the, the only difference that Columbus had in his uh, vision of the world was not, you know, round versus flat. It's that he uh, miscalculated the size of the Earth. Uh, by a lot right <laughs> by like a third he was he was Ooh. using uh he was using um uh uh an arabic text and didn't convert the miles properly uh. and so yeah he came up he thought it was about five uh, he also thought japan was a lot further east than it actually was so he figured, he figured it was about five thousand miles he was off by fifteen thousand miles Wow. Yeah. He didn't even really convince most of the sailors on the journey. Uh, there was nearly a mutiny before they hit the uh, um, the West Indies. Like, they, yeah. they just thought they were going to run out of food. They wanted to go back. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, he, he mainly just got lucky there. But this this idea that he thought the Earth, w or that, that others thought the Earth was flat, um, you know, the Bugs Bunny cartoon style. Yeah. She's a flat like a pancake. Um <laughs> <laughs> uh, this mainly comes from a biography that was written and let's be real it's like a semi-fictional biography of columbus uh written by uh washington irving in 1828 and it really was a hagiography meant to build a hero for the united states like that I, was yeah that was its primary purpose this is relatively early in the lifespan of the United States. They're looking for a non-British hero uh, to hold up as their own. And he inserts this big, long, uh, you know, tirade uh, or, or this big, long conversation between Columbus and uh, the king and queen of Spain at the time, Ferdinand and Isabella, um, where uh, the monarchs raise basically like a, a biblical uh, uh, objection to the idea that the earth could be round, which is blatantly ahistorical it is completely fictionalized it's basically to make uh columbus look brave and um you know like he's the only one who really knew what was going on and all of this stuff and you know sometimes those stories they really they really stick with people even though they've not really got much to do with reality right it's yeah a better story than well, he made a bad mistake and got lucky. Yeah. Um, I found a lot of these, you know, they weren't long enough to get into, but I found a lot of these around like George Washington, like, oh, he chopped down the cherry tree or whatever. Yeah. And like, you know, it's not enough to turn it into anything because no, he didn't. Um, but like, there's all these stories that they, like, it was very common for the time to like write these, these fictional accounts of these men doing great and honorable things uh, to sort of build them up in the, in the national uh you know conception consciousness yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, you know to, to give them heroes to build them those heroes and this particular story point just sort of stuck and i think what happens there is that it's really enhanced by that you know people in the past were dumb 
uh, mentality, yeah. this whole like dark ages, everyone didn't, you know, no one knew anything mentality. Um, we really have this, this, this concept that all human knowledge, you know, began in the early modern period in the 1450s. And we've just been on a straight upwards trajectory ever since then. And yeah. this fictionalized account just like plays really nicely into that. Never mind the fact that Irving's biography was considered pretty reliable source material for a lot longer than it should have been. Yeah. Does not help things. <laughs> Does not help things at all. So no, I mean, you know, I suppose you could you could argue that there are portions of the world where people thought that the the, the earth was flat for a lot longer. Um, but in the age of discovery, you know, all of these great uh, sailors sailing off into the unknown, none of them actually thought they were going to sail off the edge of the world. Yeah. You know, like, yeah, Magellan wasn't like concerned that, that there was an edge. He knew he was coming back. <laughs> it was just a matter of how to do it. That's all. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we, we didn't we didn't think the earth was flat. There are nope. probably more people who believe the Earth is flat now uh, than than most other periods in history. I'll be honest with you; it's it's kind of scary. <laughs> but no, weird. Yeah, and and again, the myth here isn't the Earth is you know whether or not the Earth is flat. It's it's not it's not up for debate. It's it's when we thought the Earth was round versus flat, and the answer is a lot yeah. earlier than some people realize. I've got one more topic for you, and this still kind of fits into the. Uh, ancient people were dumb uh, framework, I suppose. Which is, um, you know, we don't really know how certain ancient construction uh, projects were carried out. Okay, yeah. We know most of them. Yeah. And the things that we don't know don't necessarily matter a lot. Yeah. <laughs> let me Let me clarify for you. The, the obvious the obvious answer here is the pyramids, right? Like the obvious example. Yeah. What do we know about the pyramids? We know that the Egyptians had the stoneworking uh, capabilities to cut the limestone for the pyramids. We know which tools yeah. they used, how they worked. Um, we know where they cut the blocks from. Like we know where the quarries are for the pyramids. Yeah. Um, we even have a pretty good idea of how they, you know, worked out the geometry of the pyramids. Like a lot of yeah. people will say stuff along the lines of like, Oh, the pyramids are, are like too perfect for people to figure out. It's like, well, actually there's a, there's one called the bent pyramid and the bent pyramid was, they tried building a pyramid and they realized halfway through building it, that the uh, angle was too steep. And it would take like a ton too much material. Well, and that it would not be stable. Yeah. And so halfway through, they changed the angle and like yeah. built it, you know, in faster. Yeah. And it's like, that's that's how they figured this stuff out. Like they didn't have all the answers. They, this was trial and error. Um, yeah. You know, it's it's uh, the only things that we really don't have clear, definitive answers for are how they got the how they got the stones from the quarries to the pyramid building sites yeah. and how they got the stones up the pyramids 
And the only reason I say we don't know how those things happened what is because we don't have concrete either written record of how it was done or definitive archaeological evidence of how it was done. Okay. And that's what I mean by it doesn't matter. Like, do I want to know how they got those those blocks up there? Like, a lot of them are like two, like they're between like two and 16 tons. Like, yeah, yeah I want to know that. That's crazy. Um, does it change the fact... Like, does it change anything like material about the pyramids, right? These no. these construction projects still happened. They still existed. Um, you know, human beings uh, more than 4,000 years ago put these things together. And that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> it's really, really extremely impressive. And with a level of precision that is really, really impressive. Now, the trap that I think a lot of people fall into is that that point there, which is wow, that seems hard. How could old people have done that? Yeah. A lot of times the answer is it just took them a long time. Yeah. But it, but it was a project that was worth it to them. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's estimated that something like 30,000 artisans worked on the pyramids at one point or another. It's like, it's a lot of labor. Yeah. But uh, yeah, but like, also, there there are a lot of like, there are a lot of weird little quirks about our understanding of that stuff um, in the general record that like it really really needs to be revised. For example, uh, the idea that like slaves were used to build the pyramids. No. Yeah. No. no absolutely not, not. Not true at all. Um, these were skilled artisans. They were paid for their labor. We're not entirely sure all of the details there is speculation that farmers worked as the unskilled labor uh during like the the equivalent of the winter the off times yeah um uh, they may have done it either for pay or uh, in lieu of paying taxes okay uh, because this is this is a state-sponsored project right yeah um but like also people might have volunteered their time like this is a sacred project. Yeah. That's also well worth kind of understanding about all of this, right? But that's not the same as like, you know, chaining people up. And and a lot of that comes from the Greeks. They sort of couldn't imagine uh the pharaohs convincing enough people to work on these things because they couldn't imagine how to do that sort of work without, you know, forced labor. Yeah. Um and that misconception is just kind of carried through. Like, I mean it's it's you know, it's reinforced in uh, the Ten Commandments by Cecil B. DeMille, right? Like, yeah, this idea of like inflating it with Exodus, and and it's the uh, the Jews in exile in Egypt who are who are forced to build these pyramids. Like, no, that's there's there's zero evidence of that being the case. Yeah. In fact, there's a lot of evidence that like they were really well taken care of. Like, there's all these bakeries where they baked fresh bread every day. They were given yeah. they were given beer, which is nice high calorie and nice little bit of a buzz to keep you going. Keeps you hydrated. Yeah. Like there's there's all sorts of like they were fed meat. Uh listen, there were slaves in in Egyptian uh society, just like most societies at that point in time. Slaves yep. were not fed meat. No. That's the good stuff. That's what you give to the people <laughs> who are working on the projects you care about. That's what you give yeah. someone who you care about. It's also such a cool project. Why wouldn't you want to be? 
I mean, involved with it, right? I, I, I don't disagree with you. Um, the one thing I always enjoy about, you know, those shows, you, we, we know what shows we're talking about. The one thing I enjoy oh, about yeah. those shows is it's like, yeah, the, the pyramids, they're such a, they're such like a, a sacred geometry. Like the fact that ancient people understood that it's like, it's a pile. <laughs> like you understand, like it's, it's an artificial mountain, right? Like it's a hill. Yeah. Like yeah. later, later pyramids would actually be built on like around hills. So they would need less like fill. <laughs> that's they're, they're hills anyways um that's that's a that's a personal that's a personal hangout but hey um it's not just a hill it's a low poly hill <laughs> well and that's the thing too like like cutting rectangular blocks is not listen it's it's not i'm not saying i could do it but we understand how people at the time had the technology to work stone in this way right yeah um, you know, like they had bronze tools, which, or, or sometimes even, uh, uh, copper tools, which like, yeah, they dull quickly, but like they also had other people there who could just be sharpening tools constantly. Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, like it's, it's very possible. Like having, having a plum and a square and a straight edge is like, you can get a lot of stuff done with those three tools. Yeah. And that's kind of, that's what they did. That's how they did it. I, I don't know. Um, and once again, to your to your point from way earlier, if you took someone from that time, brought them here, and gave them all the knowledge, they're the same people. Oh, 100 percent. Just as intelligent. Yep. They yep. were just solving problems. Yeah, exactly. And that's that's one of the things I find really interesting about these old construction projects. And I'm, I'm focusing on the pyramids because they're the most obvious ones. But this goes for a lot of things. There is always it's always kind of struck me as odd, this sort of general lack of curiosity about the methodology um beyond the intellectual mm. uh history and archaeology well history more i would say but history has this issue of not always being willing to speak to experts of other fields sometimes we sort of just talk about things theoretically and don't try them practically and there are a lot of times where you know, when it comes to the pyramids, there have been some there, there have been people who are like, ah, there's no way, you know, they could have used levers to lift a two ton block up these these stepped pyramids. And then, like, you'll read about a guy who's like, yeah, I wondered if a, if a lever would do it. And it's just some guy like in his yard. Right. Yeah. I wondered if a lever could lift up a two ton block up a pyramid. Uh, and I yeah. tried it and I got six of my buddies over and uh, we did it. Yeah, we did it. <laughs> it works yeah <laughs> i i remember i remember watching a a, a documentary or or like maybe it was even like a, a personal interest story or something like that of some like old like he, he was like 60 like this northern english guy who just like set up standing stones like stonehenge style yeah for fun yeah and, you know, the whole thing starts out with all these experts who are like, nobody knows how we stood up these stones. And he's like, yeah, so what I did was I took the stones and I started digging under one end. And as it started tipping into the hole I was digging, uh, I filled in the, the dirt under the other end and it just sort of tipped into the hole and now it's standing. <laughs> and he stood up like a 12 foot stone on his own. Yeah. And it's like, OK. <laughs> Maybe, maybe we just need to try this stuff. Um, 
The, the other comment I would want to make here is that like sometimes this information isn't necessarily lost. Yeah. And you need to be really careful of that when analyzing some of these methods. Um, the, the main uh, example for me is the Moai in, um, uh, you know, in Easter Island, right? Like those, big, Island, yeah. those big carved heads. Um, when we would ask the Islanders how, you know, because the, 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 the mystery there, quote unquote mystery, is, you know, the, the, the quarries are at one end of the island and all these Moai are set up along the shore looking out at the other end of the island. And it's a, it's a couple of miles, right? Yeah. And when they would ask the islanders, well, how did the heads get there? They would say, oh, they walked there. And we go, ah, you know, what do you guys know, basically? So it turns out you can take Moai and tie like four-ish ropes to their heads. And with a team of a couple people per rope, you can get them doing this sort of swaying motion back and forth that walks them forward. Yeah. And they're pretty easy to move for their size. And that's probably how they got them there. They just walked them there. They just, they walked. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, it's, it's, it's really important to kind of keep that in mind. And, and the reason I bring all of this stuff up, this idea that like, oh, well, you know, ancient people couldn't have done any of this stuff. You know, number one, a lot of these things don't take very complicated technology. And the fact that we rely on, you know, computer modeling and, you know, modern cranes and uh, material science and all of that stuff for construction now doesn't mean that we couldn't figure it out with less technology if we needed to. There are going to be people 200 years from now looking at what we're doing now and going, oh, so primitive. Yeah. Number two, we need to be really careful about whose abilities we dismiss. There's very specifically a uh, a book uh, called Chariots of the Gods, written by yep. a guy named uh, Eric von Daniken, which you know it's not the only place that the whole ancient aliens theory has come from, but you know the modern movement very much ties back to it. And the thrust of his argument is looking at a number of different constructions throughout the world and basically saying, well, that doesn't seem probable that people from back then would know how to do this. Therefore, there must have been extraterrestrial intervention. Um, one, notable, one notable factor uh, in, in the ancient aliens movement is a lack of criticism of Western construction techniques. Yeah. I, yeah. And I think, that's a, I think that's something to just kind of be a little bit heads up about when looking at this stuff. Because there is stuff about western construction that we don't understand today um the romans had a type of uh concrete which honestly is better than anything we have now yeah yep we don't know how they did it nobody's blaming aliens um well um, i mean ancient aliens is on what like season 35 now they've probably done it by now um yeah but, but the point being like the the core of the movement isn't critical of that yeah. They see that as Roman ingenuity. We don't always 100% understand how some of the Gothic cathedrals were constructed. Okay. Like there are there are significant questions about like specific steps of that process. Um that we're not quite sure on. Nobody is saying that aliens came down and did those. They are like 
unquestioningly uh, attributed to devoted and well-paid craftsmen who yeah. worked decades to uh, construct these these massive projects. And we just sort of don't give the same credit to people working on pyramids. It's the same thing. It's yeah. It's it, really it really is. It's really the exact same thing. So I, I think this myth that, you know, ancient people couldn't have built the things that they did. I I I really encourage like if there's there's always something there's always something. There's always somebody's gonna go, ah, but what about this one? Um, there's there's one in there's one in Central America I think that always comes up that oh the seams are too seams are too close together you couldn't get a you, know, you couldn't get a fingernail in between you can't you can't slip a piece of paper in between I really encourage people to look into that stuff and like how how that construction actually took place it is extremely possible human beings are very clever we got to give ourselves a little more credit than that and we really need yeah. to be careful about um, like. In general, in history, anytime, um, anytime we're criticizing everybody from anywhere except from Europe or North America, if you ever see yeah. that, just just take a second, just take a second, take a quick breath, think about it a little bit, pause. <laughs> maybe, maybe, maybe Google a second source. You yeah, know? <laughs> it's it's always a telltale sign that something is going on. But yeah, this idea that ancient humans weren't clever, it, it needs to go away. Yeah. If anything, the limitations have made us, or uh, if anything, the limitations seem to have made our ancestors even more clever with their their solutions. And I, I think that's I think that's a really fascinating thing, and it does them a disservice to to just kind of dismiss their hard work that way. Yeah. So, anyways, that's my that's my final myth that that ancient people were were not good at constructing things. My goodness, the, the things they pulled off with very few tools. Uh, smarter than me, that's for sure. Um, so yeah, that's all the myths I have for today. Um, I know people are going to have other myths. There are other myths that I, I chose not to include. Um, Absolutely. You know, I don't know. This could be another, this could be a fun uh, idea for for a follow-up at some point. Um, yeah. If I'm once again short on time. But I had, I had a good time going through some of these. It's a it's a yeah, like a bunch of great. bunch of nice little like mini episodes, and got to talk about some stuff that uh, normally wouldn't have the chance to. Yeah, absolutely. What was your favorite one? Uh, I got really into the corset one because that's a. <laughs> I don't I don't know if this is the right place to to tell the story or if you'll include this at all. But like, oh, go for it. In acting school, we did have corsets around, mm -hmm. and so there was. There, there have been several times where I've, I've actually uh, fully straight laced people, and it's, it's wild. It's, it's almost a, a rite of passage there to, to get straight laced into a corset. Sure. Uh, I've, I've definitely done it. Uh, yeah. And like felt the Oregon thing. Yeah, I mean, you need a second I, I have, to. I've felt that. You need a second to like <laughs> settle weird. in. I get, uh, I get the impression, but. Um, uh, Honestly, the weirder part was releasing it because mm. then it just like they popped back. The organs moved back where they were supposed to be. Yeah, I've heard you're supposed to go. A, heard, you're supposed to go slowly. You're and, supposed to go slow and like let let everything kind of get back into place. Blood flow, too, I think is a is an issue like surface yeah. blood, blood flow. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It's it's wild. Mm. 
No, that's, um, and that's yeah, cool. once once again, it was it, they were just like we had four of them, four different sizes. You just pick the closest one, and yeah, they didn't fit your body properly. Mm-hmm. It's they they weren't made for you. Yeah. Um. So yeah, they weren't terribly comfortable. Right. But uh, but the ones back sure were, or more so. Yeah, certainly more so. Certainly more so. Um, yeah. Cool. Well, thanks so much for for joining me on this one today. I I really had a lot of fun. I'm I'm glad we could do this. Yeah, thanks for having me. I I always enjoy uh doing doing your podcast here. Well, we'll have to do it again soon. So that's our episode on historical myths. Sorry it's a few days late, but I was enjoying my holiday break. Uh, I hope you all had a chance to do the same. Since HI101's format can lead to some factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections I post there for each episode. This episode was basically one giant correction from me, so if I've made any major errors, it'll definitely be more embarrassing than usual. However, if there are any errors I've missed there, please let me know so I can add them. You can also reach me on Facebook at facebook.com slash hi101podcast, on Twitter at hi101podcast, or by email at contact at hi101.ca. If you'd like to support the show, please visit patreon.com slash hi101 to make a monthly pledge, or paypal.me slash hi101 for a single donation. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If any of the subjects we've discussed today have caught your attention, take a look around. I guarantee there's plenty of interesting information out there we didn't cover. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.